Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. have another insightful episode for you today as we're diving into one of our favorite topics, the microbiome. The health of our gut truly impacts everything in our life and what we eat and all of the environmental inputs impact our gut. Today, we're joined by leading microbiome expert, Dr. Emran Meyer, author of The Mind-Gut Connection and recently came out with his latest book, Gut Immune. He's studied brain-body interactions for the last 40 years and is the founding director of the UCLA Brain-Gut Microbiome Center and the executive director of the G. Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience. So excited to have him on the podcast today, and we know as a Saccharolite that you will love this episode. Well, Dr. Meyer, we are so excited to have you on the Sakara Life podcast. We are big fans of your work and the research that you've done into the microbiome. Uh, we like to start off our conversations by asking our guests the same question, which is, what do you feel is your personal mission here on Earth? Interesting question. I would say that has somewhat changed, you know, from the earlier parts of my career where it was promoting science and providing the scientific basis of gut health, really. That's why I became a gastroenterologist. And I would say since I published my first book, so since about five years ago, and it's taken a somewhat different turn. It's taken a turn of promoting the science in a lay-friendly fashion to as many people as possible and improve health that way. So it's shifted from being a card-carrying scientist and really getting to the roots of everything to being the vehicle that promotes this to the public. Mm. That's incredible. And it's such important work. And there's so much to talk about in this hour. I think where I would love to start is you've talked about in your past book what the gut-brain connection is. We've talked about that Actually, here on the Sakar Life podcast, we had Dr. Will Bolshewitz. I'd love to get into that. Maybe we'll have you for a part two, because I really actually want to get into the gut immune connection, which is your newest book. So I think what would be most helpful for everyone listening is, could you start out with what is a typical metabolic syndrome? What does it mean to have metabolic syndrome? Because you put that at the core of like what gets in the way between the gut and our health. I hear that term used a lot. And I think it's really important for people to understand because typically people just think of their metabolism, which I guess essentially it is, but it's not that simple. So could you touch on what are the metabolic syndromes and how does the gut impact them? Well, I mean, there's, you know, from a medical definition, there's one metabolic syndrome, which is a constellation of 
type 2 diabetes, of hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. So seemingly unrelated entities, but they do co-occur together in a way that you can look at this constellation as a syndrome. And at the core of this is really, you know, which I emphasize throughout this low-grade immune activation that starts in the gut because that's where most of our immune system is located and then spreads throughout the body. I mean, the immune system is a very complicated system. So when we sort of bring it down to a low-grade immune activation, it's a tremendous oversimplification, but I think it points in a direction that it links all these things together. So the immune system, they got the microbes communicating with this immune system. Then uh, the inflammatory mediators first being confined to the gut, changing gut function, permeability, and then traveling throughout the systemic circulation and um, affecting pretty much every organ, including the brain. And one manifestation of that is the metabolic syndrome. I mean, there's clearly, but it's, as I tried to explain, it's it's a network of diseases and symptoms that are all in some ways linked through a similar mechanism. They all still have their own genetic predisposition. So one person with a with the metabolic syndrome may develop, may have a high risk of Alzheimer's disease, another person of Parkinson's, another person of chronic heart disease, fatty liver disease. So it's, you know, I mean, the metabolic syndrome is, is one syndrome amongst within this network that links everything together. I think this is really interesting because for a long time, I mean, I was going to see dermatologists for my skin problem, not realizing I had a gut problem. And I think that that's what a lot of people are doing. And I know that diabetes, type 2 diabetes and hypertension are two of the most expensive health conditions for insurance companies, that they're specifically looking, how can we reduce hypertension? How can we reduce type 2 diabetes? And looking at them as two different problems. But you're saying in a way that all of these things that you just listed are metabolic syndrome, that it's actually all related in one way or another. They just manifest in different ways. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So they're all related and they manifest. So they have a couple of things in common. I mean, one is because that immune activation starts in the gut. So they have that in common. They have the mechanism of this gut permeability, or, you know, if it goes wrong, the leaky gut in common, they have the role of diet as a major factor and other lifestyle factors and the sort of things that are not really dietary components, but they come like all the chemicals that come with it. There is this sort of, um, this link that goes from our lifestyles, our food through the gut, through the gut's immune system, then to all the other organs. And I do want to emphasize, you know, there's, this is always surprising. There's a lot of people. So even from when I go back to my hometown, you know, so it's not the healthiest diet in Southern. Where is your hometown? Uh, so it's outside of Munich, small town outside of Munich. Nice. And so people there are not known for eating the healthiest diet. And, but there's many people that live into their nineties and to their hundreds. You know, it's not that there's a linear relationship between what you eat and, you know, the health outcome. There's this phenomenon of resilience. And there's these other factors that play into it, like all the mind-based factors, how socially connected you are, how fulfilled you are, how meaningful your life is. 
So these are all resilience factors. So you may actually have a very unhealthy diet, but you still live into your nineties, you know, but if everything happens in a negative way that the diet goes bad, the social interactions are compromised because we live, I mean, the way we live here in this country, then they, they all potentiated each other. And then, so it's more important than in a society when some Western societies, we have multiple of these resilience factors being compromised as well, including the diet. And your risk goes way up and genetic factors as well as epigenetic factors. I mean, that's something, you know, what happens to you early in life that is shaping modulation of your gene expression. Like you don't change your genes, but you change the way the information is being expressed. And we know a lot that adverse early life events, and it's a wide range of influences, can increase the risk of developing many of these chronic diseases later, including uh, depression and like the mental diseases, but also hypertension, like all of them. How much is earlier life versus later in life? Like if things happen earlier in life, can you change that later in life if you work so at it? Early in life. So there's different things that happen at different stages. So the, the microbiome is kind of established in its adult form in the first thousand days of life. And that, that starts really during pregnancy in utero. In terms of the nervous system, the full development, you know, takes 18 to 25 years. So there's sort of different timescales on that. But I think that early programming, would these early factors, you know, have a, have a big impact is really, I would say the first few years of life, you know, and in utero, this is a very important thing. Most people forget that. They think uh, whatever happens to the pregnant mother is transmitted partially also through the microbes of the mother and the metabolites onto the developing nervous system of the fetus. But there's this interesting thing that, you know, there are these resilience factors. Some are genetic. People can live with a lot of adversity and still come out okay. Um, I mean, just look at these millions of refugees and, and these heartbreaking scenes that we see on TV all the time. Not all these people develop chronic diseases later. Probably it's just a minority. And there's resilience factors that sort of counterbalance that. But mm. what I said earlier, I think in our society, a lot of potentially harmful things are coming together from the chronic stress, you know, the way people live in big cities, commuting, less uh, social interactions compared to Mediterranean countries, then plus then the diet and the lack of exercise, you know, so it's I mean, the U.S. is really a breeding ground where you put all the negative ingredients together and then, you know, we see the outcome. I mean, we have the, the most expensive healthcare system in the world. Not necessarily the most effective one, but the most expensive one. Yeah. And there was recently that study out of, I think it was the University of North Carolina that said that 88% of Americans are metabolically ill. So have metabolic syndrome as defined, as you said earlier, you know, blood glucose, triglycerides, et cetera, et cetera, waist circumference. And so in your book, you talk about that's at the core of so many other diseases from depression to Parkinson's, et cetera. Can you talk about how the gut plays a role in metabolic syndrome? Because one of my takeaways from your book was if we can make sure we don't fall into metabolic syndrome, we can actually 
keep ourselves from having a huge long list of other lifestyle diseases? Yeah, so I think I mentioned this before, and and I kind of hate to, as a scientist, to oversimplify things. You know, it's always, I think you always have to be suspicious if somebody tries to explain multiple things by a simple mechanism. But in this case, I mean, the evidence is really converging on this idea that the body surface we're interacting with the world, you know, which is our gut, is the largest. If you spread it out, it's about the size of a basketball court, much larger than our skin, you know. Wow. And we and and we interact with that surface with the world and all the things that we ingest and put in there. Plus, you know, we have this massive colony of these microbes that live on that surface and influence w- what it does. So, yeah, just for a moment, make this um, this imaginary game that you look at yourself inside out, and all of a sudden now you see there's a, a massive amount of activity going on that all is sort of influences organs, the information that our organs get, that our brain gets. And at the core, this is is one thing that about 70% of the immune system is in our gut. It's a very, it's like a sandwich. It's between the layers of the gut is are these immune cells distributed and they they just don't stay there. You know, they go to other parts of your body as well, these immune cells. So they there's a gut pulmonary axis, there's a, there's a gut-brain axis, there's a gut-liver axis. And that means that there's communication with the immune cells that reside in the gut to all these other areas. And the activation of these immune cells uh, normally happens if the alarm bells goes off in, in the gut. So look, a, a pathogen, an entotoxigenic uh, E. coli organism gets in there and it um, the gut immediately recognizes this, the gut's immune system, as a threat to the homeostasis of the whole organism. And then, um, yeah, the immune cells kicks into full gear and tries to fight this. You get the inflammation. It affects the whole body with such a gastroenteritis. What happens with all these diseases, it's not a pathogen that gets in contact with the immune system. It's It's the contact of our normal gut microbes that are separated from the immune cells in the gut through two mechanisms. One is this um, double layer of mucus or sugar molecules that keeps the microbes at a safe distance. It's just a few microns, but it's enough to keep it away from the sensors of the immune cells. And then there's the epithelial barrier, which is the lining of the gut, the cells that are very tightly connected with each other. So they have essentially two mechanisms that keeps your normal gut microbes away from the immune system. So if we compromise that barrier with, and and there's really two major mechanisms. One is an unhealthy diet that's devoid of fiber, I would say primarily, and is is high in ultra-processed foods and high in sugar. That basically decreases the number of microbes that play a role in stimulating mucus production. And... um, once that mucus layer gets thinner, then the sensors of the immune cells come in contact with the microbes, which are normally benign microbes, and ring the alarm bell. And then the alarm bells go off, even though there's not a pathogen. So that's kind of the basic. Mm. The same thing can happen with chronic stress. Chronic stress through the, the brain sends down through the autonomic nervous system, signals to the gut, and it does something very similar. It changes, it increases the permeability, makes the gut leakier. So if you combine 
chronic psychosocial stress that most of us are living under and chronic dietary stress, which a large portion of Americans also live under, you get this double negative influence that is really at the core of our disease epidemic. And where does sleep play a role in this? Well, sleep plays a big role. So first of all, it's an anti-inflammatory effect. So it has a attenuating effect on uh, on the immune system. And, you know, there's a lot of things that happen during sleep in terms of the gut function. So when you go to sleep, close your eyes, fall asleep, and particularly don't put food into your intestine, the intestine switches in a very short time into a, a unique regular pattern. Every 90 minutes, there's a contractile wave goes through from your esophagus all the way down to the end of the intestine. It's been called the housekeeper of the gut, or in scientific terms, the migrating motor complex. It's both the contractions and secretions that go down in a wave, and it cleanses out your gut. So when we talk about, as you know, and as you're also promoting, so it's important to these, have a clean, uh, healthy digestive yeah. system. But, but that, so the gut has its own mechanism to do this. You Amazing. only have to let it do it, and which means... If you have an undisturbed sleep and you don't get up and snack because you can't sleep or you stay up late and snack and drink and then reduce the time where the gut is actually empty and has that cleansing mechanism, then you compromise. So then uh, microbes migrate up the small intestine where they don't really belong to. You get something like this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. SIBO. A lot SIBO. of people are talking about SIBO, that they're getting SIBO. More functional medicine doctors are are now testing for it, and it's a problem. So you're saying that sleep plays a role in SIBO. Yeah, I'm personally not a huge fan of the concept of SIBO. I think, I mean, a lot of people have symptoms of bloating, indigestion, and they they were given sort of this... I mean, I would really call They're it... They're looking for a diagnosis with that. Looking for a diagnosis mm -hmm. because they were they were afraid and hated it to be told by their gastroenterologist, um, you know, yeah, this is nothing serious. It's it's because you're, you're a warrior or something. So now, you know, a lot of patients have that SIBO label to hang on to and mm -hmm. say, now I have a, have a serious disease. It's so serious, it has to be treated with an antibiotic, which is crazy. You know, I mean, in this day and age... To say that you get better by taking an antibiotic, like repeatedly, I think is, you know, for that yeah. reason. I and with SIBO, it's often not treated, like it can be temporarily treated with an antibiotic, but it continues to come back because we're not getting to the underlying root causes. And, you know, as mentioned, I mean, so one of these root causes is, so let's say you have, you know, like your street cleaning service in a city. So they go on strike. You know, so leaves will accumulate, dirt will accumulate in the streets. So the only way to get rid of that problem is to fix the street cleaning service to get them back into business and into action. And, and that's what I say with a regular sleep hygiene. And uh, I mean, there's obviously many things that people can do to improve their sleep. A lot of people have sleep disturbances, which comes along with the chronic stress. And diet. Diet plays a big role in the quality of your sleep as well. Absolutely. Is a healthy microbiome something that you can test for? This is something that I deal with in my book as well. So as you know, there are several companies that do these stool tests. 
some of them have been around for a while. So what you test with most of those is the what we call the relative abundance of certain taxa of certain species and genera, certain groups of microbes. What most of these companies do, they make recommendations based on this uh, analysis, which is not really, I would say, scientifically supported. What has happened in this field is it's moved from counting the relative abundances of microbial organisms to looking at the function of the whole ecosystem. So none of these microbes acts in, in isolation. I mean, there's some, obviously, that are more useful than others. So the ones that produce short-chain fatty acid and butyrate are definitely the good guys. Another one, Acomancia, that uh, plays a big role in stimulating mucus production is, is another one. But in general, it's always groups of microbes working together to give you the benefit. And if these group interactions are compromised, like any ecosystem, then you don't get the full benefit. And so if you look at the function, you know, and there's techniques called uh, metagenomics or uh, metatranscriptomics, where you just look what the genes of all these microbes, what they encode and what they express, then you get a much better picture. And the science is rapidly moving in that direction that we identify the metabolites, signaling molecules, and not just focusing on, on a particular organism. So this is in flux, this field. I would say most of my patients now come with a report from one of those uh, companies. They're so complicated, you know, they're maybe 30 page long. I think really irrelevant for the patient to see this. I mean, I think they get the long report because the company wants to make sure you feel you got something for your money that you paid for that test. Mm -hmm. But it's not really something. So I always say when a patient shows me this, it says, yeah, it's not going to influence what I'm going to recommend to you in terms of diet or, or therapy. And why is that? Is there how, what do you recommend when somebody comes with what you might consider a typical leaky gut symptom? Well, this sort of goes to a concept that I would say is kind of the human default diet which is a largely plant-based diet that our system, particularly the microbiome, is set up in a way that it, the optimal function of the microbiota is assured if, if you feed the microbes what they need for their own survival, but also what they transform into health-promoting molecules, like, you know, the short-chain fatty acids are the best example, or, or the mucus. And so I, I think you should start with everybody. I mean, there's no individual differences Unless somebody has a true food allergy, you know, a life-threatening allergy, then definitely something that's also new, which didn't happen when I went to medical school, that there was such a big number of people with peanut allergies and other things that I think I never heard about this before, you know, um, specialty training as, as a gastroenterologist. But this default diet that everybody should start with that diet, thinking about it, if I feed my microbes well, the microbes will take care of all the rest. So if you feed the microbes well with a largely plant-based diet, you get enough protein, you get the vitamins, the minerals, and you get these anti-inflammatory molecules in abundance, both in, from the breakdown products of fiber, but also the breakdown products of the polyphenols that are, you know, in, in all those. So you have these two components in the diet. And there may be a third one, you know, a recent study always difficult to say if one study changes, you know, it should change our view on this. But so very recent study from, from Stanford 
showed that a combination of multiple fermented foods could actually be more beneficial to the diversity of your gut microbes than, than the high fiber diet alone. So I would say the addition of a several items of naturally fermented food to a largely plant-based diet should be the default diet. And then you can see there's people with food hypersensitivities. They get bloating from certain vegetables, beans or uh, other legumes. There's people with food allergies, something pretty serious. So they have to modify that default diet. And then they have their own personalized, customized diet, which is not something that you know, you need to go to a new specialty or fat diet. And you guys have really been promoting this this kind of concept. We're really about that human default diet, trying to get people at least to have that strong, healthy baseline that feeds the good microbes. And then if they need to adjust a little bit for themselves, then they can make that. But the majority of Americans don't have that baseline to start from. And now for a quick break, we wanted to take a moment to tell you guys about one of our newest Sakara products, the Foundation, which is a packet of your daily essential supplements, all Sakarified, so to speak, meaning completely clean, plant-based, bioavailable, and coming from whole food sources. Lots of times people think that supplements are just pills that you take, but really you should use the same level of scrutiny and standards that you would for your food. So these supplements are not only incredibly effective, but also incredibly clean. After taking them just for a couple weeks, you'll feel increased energy, better digestion, more restful, deep sleep, brain clarity, and boosted immunity. And we like to think of this as our nutritional insurance. So yes, first and foremost, you want to get your nutrients from the foods that you eat every single day. But if you are a Saccharolite, which we know you are since you're listening, you know that we believe in eating clean and playing dirty, that none of us are perfect, nor would we want to be. Sometimes life gets in the way. And even though I get Saqqara food delivered to me every week, some weeks I just don't eat as well as I wish I, I could have. And so this is a great way to make sure you're getting all of the essential nutrients you need to feel and look your best. And for all of you Sakara lights out there right now, we're gifting you $15 to use towards your first purchase of the foundation. Just use podcast 15 at checkout on Sakara.com. And we put a lot of love and work into creating these supplements over the past three years at least. So we hope that you love them just as much as we do. Enjoy. Let's get back to the episode. I really want to congratulate you to have come up with that and have really persisted with that concept, which is quite different from some other, you know, entities, commercial entities that profit from... From bio-individuality. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's amazing to me what you can sell, you know, without any evidence behind it. What's your stance? I'm curious. I know you, you talk about your One Health model and the importance of healthy soil and our planet. And 
I'd love to get into that, but I feel like, you know, there's a lot in the media right now about the impacts of eating meat and how we typically farm meat and animals, the impact on the soil. What is your take on that? And are you a proponent of animal-based proteins? And if so, how much or how little? Yeah. So let me give you a very short biographical thing on this. So again, going back the way I grew up, total unaware of the health aspects of diet. You just ate the diet that you grew up in that everybody else was eating and that you thought is, you know, is the optimal. So a lot of meat in the diet. And then gradually that has changed over time, you know, becoming a big fan of the Mediterranean diet, becoming more and more conscious and aware of the health consequences of the diet. And so from all my investigations and I, I think the largely plant-based, that's why I keep emphasizing this largely, you know, which is the Mediterranean type or similar kind of Asian diets that have a composition like that, that that's the optimal one. Um, I know also my friend, Will Gulsevich, is obviously, you know, vegan. Um, some people adamantly, you know, almost in a religious fashion are vegans. There's an element for me in this that the whole ethical aspect, you know, which I find absolutely horrendous, what we do to these animals, most people have no idea what they go through. And then there's now the latest one, you know, with the impact on the environment. So my meat consumption basically is limited to small fish because they're not threatened by extinction. So the sardines and the anchovies, and the, which are not very popular in the U.S., but highly popular in places like Spain and Italy and are delicious. And the occasional free-range chicken. I personally would not touch red meat anymore. And is that because of its impact on the gut? Or is that more of a one planet? For me, it would be more the one health concept. Even though on the gut, the kind of beef that we eat that is not grass-fed, that is cows under extreme stress, the fat, the types of fat um, that this meat has is unhealthy. Um, there's other components like this TMAO that microbes produce from carnitine um, that, that also contributes to cardiovascular disease. So there's clearly multiple reasons why you wouldn't eat red meat. There's an exception, which I also used to do when I was young, um, wild game mm -hmm. that does have a much healthier meat because it doesn't have all these things, these, these, these chemicals and these compositions that come from the way we feed our farm animals. But that was a phase, you know, I don't miss that at all, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you, like, I have this theory that when my kids are my age, that root canals are going to be like, so gone. And they're going to look at me and be like, I can't believe that you guys used to do root canals. <laughs> <laughs> and so knowing what you know, what do you think our kids, so in the next 20 years, we're going to look back and be like, I can't believe that we didn't know this about the microbiome or about what to eat or, you know, especially given, I love in your book, how you talk about humans have what 20, about 20,000 genes. Our, our microbes, our microbiome has like 20 million. And so when you start to think about epigenetics and nutrigenomics and how, what we're surrounded by and what we eat changes genetic expression you can start to understand how every single decision that you make actually impacts your microbiome and therefore your health so much more 
than just your own genetic expression. Yeah, and um, you started your uh, question with the root canal story, so you know, which leads directly to sugar consumption. Mm. Also, something that is a total distortion of a healthy diet and a microbiome-friendly diet. Sugar molecules are being absorbed right in your duodenum. Very efficient mechanisms to absorb sugar. So none of that part of the diet, which is the highest in calories, goes down to the microbes. So you essentially eliminate the microbes from your dinner table with this high sugar diet. And it has all these other consequences from... So you're saying they're not being fed. Your microbes, if you're eating a high sugar diet, they're not getting the food that they need. I like to talk about microbes as my little pets. If I think about them that way, it's not just having to take care of myself, but this whole aquarium ecosystem of pets and they need to be fed properly and be watered properly and they need to have proper rest and relaxation and that type of thing. And so you're saying the sugar doesn't even get down to them. So we need to be feeding them food that does. So the sugar doesn't get down there, but also many of the ultra processed foods, you know, which so we've taken the fiber out of so many of our food products and have created taste preferences that of fiberless or fiber-free food. You know, it's a, I mean, the white rice is a good example. The, the type of potato that we eat is another example, the pasta. So if you go to, you know, the whole wheat pasta or, or vegetable-based pasta, it tastes different. So quite a few people would say, oh, I don't like that taste. I like my soft uh, spaghetti or penne or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so this idea that we have created a diet that has ignored the needs of the microbiome because this diet is optimized for our extremely effective absorptive mechanisms in our small bowel. And we don't think that very little goes down, you know, to the microbes compared to to our ancestors or to people that live still in uh, societies, you know, that, I mean, I, I had this experience during my college years being on a, on a film expedition with the Yanomami, um, indigenous people on the Orinoco River, and we were able to observe how they got their food and, and what they ate. And it was, it was just, a, I mean, this is not something that we can repeat today, obviously, because we live in a different world. But I, I think this idea that you, as you said uh, eloquently, that we don't think of, you know, we have no empathy for our microbes. We don't even think about them. We don't even think about their existence, you know, when we eat the kind of food that, that we're used to in our, or that's being sold to us from commercial entities. So do you think that along with root canals that processed food will be gone in 20 years? <laughs> yeah, this is a huge question. You know, I think it's kind of like uh, turning around an aircraft carrier in full motion, yep. which is not happening quickly. You know, so there's a lot of things happening now, I think, that are converging like the climate change, like the healthcare costs that make people think more and more about the diet. The pandemic has helped. You know, a lot of people got focused on their gut health. So I try to be optimistic. And there's an increasing number of young people that switch to plant-based diets. There's even fast food chains now that, you know, sell vegetarian food that's at the LA airport. I think the city council voted that there has to be a vegetarian restaurant in each terminal for those people that are vegetarians, you know. So, 
I, I think there's a lot of things happening that have not happened before. And um, on the other hand, there's billions of dollars from lobbying efforts of the, the big food companies and the subsidies that still go to agriculture from the government to produce the wrong kind of food and subsidize it. So I tend to be optimistic. I think we'll see a worsening of our crises before. So humans usually respond when things get really bad. And you know, I mean, we're seeing we this now. We procrastinate until the last minute. Until the last minute. Yeah. And you see this a little bit now with climate change. People are finally getting more serious. Still not serious enough, but I think this will happen with diet as well. We have all these discussions about the exorbitant costs of the healthcare system, which is really a disease care system. We don't really take care of the health. But nobody gets up and said, okay, let's start at the root cause of this problem. Let's start with the diet and the lifestyle and put this money into that part of it rather than dealing with more and more sophisticated ways of diagnosing and doing tests that identify the risk for certain diseases. I think what we need to do is really the health education, and that should start early. I think it should start with mothers that plan to have children, and then it should continue with the small children. That would have the biggest impact. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And if that happens at some point, I'm optimistic. I, I think we have a chance now that things will permanently change. You know, and I mean, I mentioned in my book that some some people in industry, you know, I, I mentioned the former CEO of Danone, the owner and founder of Patagonia. I mean, these are really, you know, pioneers that that have promoted this successfully. And your company is another example, you know, how you can successfully create a business on this new view of health and diet. And I love in your book, you talk about how, you know, this one health model, it's like, we can't expect to have a healthy body without a healthy planet. And I think for most people, you can kind of conceptualize why that's so like, it's, you know, climate change is stressful and yeah, you can imagine that having, you know, more CO2 in the atmosphere has downstream effects on our health. But I think the way you outline about how it, the health of our soil is the health of our food and the health of our food is the health of our bodies. Could you just maybe give your, I know it's a long bit in the book, but could you give kind of the, the 101 overview of the importance of the health of our soil to the health of our microbiome? Yeah. So my own Migration from being a gastroenterologist from the gut to the microbes. And then obviously you can't study the microbes without paying attention to what we feed the microbes to diet. And then you realize it's not just what you feed uh, the microbes, but also where that food comes from and how is it grown? Is it grown in a hydroponic way without the soil, without the soil microbes? Is it grown in in a soil where all the microbes have been basically destroyed from chemical fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides, it still looks like healthy plant-based food, but it does not have the main ingredients, such as the polyphenols. You know, it's, it's depleted. Yeah. Can you tell us about polyphenols for one second? Yeah. Fiber has always gotten the most attention and Dr. Bulsevich has been a master of pushing the, the fiber idea. But this is other big group of molecules, you know, thousands of different molecules, or very large molecules that are in plants that give not only plants and fruits, berries, its color, but also the, it's their pharmacy. It's the, the molecules that the plants use to defend themselves against pests and UV light and drought. And 
So the plants produce this for their own benefit with the help of the soil microbes. So without the interaction of the soil microbes with the roots of the plants, you get a, a greatly diminished amount of these polyphenols in the plant. When we eat the plant, you know, we eat those polyphenol molecules. And originally it was thought that these are antioxidants because if you put them into a test tube, they work like antioxidants, but they're not absorbed in our gut. So people didn't find blood levels, you know, therapeutic blood levels. So they dismissed that whole concept. In the meantime, we know that it's the microbes that break down these polyphenols once they get down further downstream. And they're both prebiotics for the microbes, they're food for the microbes, but they also, the breakdown products, just like the breakdown products of fiber, have health-promoting effects for us. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a wonderful image when you think about how the same model of interacting of microbes in the soil with the plant roots is a very similar model, the interaction of our microbes in the gut with our, with our immune system, how that has been maintained in evolution as a guiding principle, and that this system provides health benefits for both the plants and for us. And in this race to increase uh, yield uh, of agriculture and productivity, we've totally forgotten about that idea, you know, that we, that we are destroying just as we're destroying the microbes with our food and the antibiotics, we haven't thought about the, the collateral damage that this causes. Antibiotics are life-saving medications for millions of people, but at the same time, they have a collateral damage you know, on, on the microbial world. And that's the same with the fertilizers. Yes, they have fed millions, maybe billions of people, but at the same time, we're destroying the various soil that, that these plants are, are, are growing in. Yeah, that's really interesting. And Dr. Sinclair at Harvard in the anti-aging unit over there at Harvard talks about how resveratrol is one of the only proven anti-aging mechanisms, something that we have, like a supplement that we can take that has proven anti-aging benefits. And it's a polyphenol. And I don't think I've, you know, he talks about that it's not the antioxidant benefits that do that, that it's about the protective nature of these polyphenols, what they do for the plant. But I've never heard anyone talk about it almost as if they're prebiotics, that they're going in to feed these microbes and then it's actually the microbes and that ecosystem being healthy that promotes health. Yeah, so one of the functions is prebiotics and they... They nurture particularly the beneficial microbes. So they have a, an inhibitory effect on microbes that would have an inflammatory, you know, effect on our gut. Plants have developed this system, this interaction of microbes and pests with the polyphenols. So polyphenols clearly are able to kill and suppress the non-beneficial microbial organisms in the plant and probably inside our gut as well. Just a, a comment on what you said about the, that this is the only, um, polyphenol that has shown anti-aging effects. You know, there are, there are thousands of these molecules and it's, it's a very difficult science because not only most likely do they work in isolation, but they work like a system as well, you know, so. Which is hard to test. It's hard to test a system. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to test. Yeah. But I agree with you that I think that that's one that has been able to be tested in isolation and proven, and that there are likely many others 
And I think that that's why we talk about getting a diversity of foods and plants into your body, all of those different molecules, because the science just hasn't caught up yet with the power of nature. But we know that nature is smart and that it's out there. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is so important to for everyone listening to really understand. It's like these polyphenols are born out of the plant's ability to thrive and survive. So they're actually the mechanisms within the plant that keep it alive. And when we're growing food in the way we do now in traditional agriculture, we actually create these these environments that the plant doesn't need to fight to survive. Domesticated. So covering them in herbicides, fungicides, pesticides, you know, it's doing a lot of the fighting for the plant. And so then we're left with plants that are much lower in these really important molecules and polyphenols, which is just fascinating. Yeah. And uh, so some of the consequences of that is so they, they develop fewer and less sufficient mechanisms to defend themselves. So that's the, where the need comes in for these, for these pesticides. People have found that there's, they need increasing amounts and concentrations of the pesticides to keep their plants healthy. Healthy in quotation marks, really. It's a yeah. kind of an analogy to a disease care system, not a health care system. You know, so when you eat a plant-based food that is not um, is not organically grown, then you ingest more and more of these these chemicals, these residues of pesticides, like all these toxic um, chemicals. And again, what's interesting, the microbes play a big role in transforming some of these, like the glyphosate into harmful substances. So the human biology does not have a mechanism to convert glyphosate into disease-causing molecules, but the microbes do, which has never been tested. So th these are approved, you know, glyphosate Roundup is used in, in enormous amounts, but there's never been a study that has shown once the microbes break it down, what happens downstream and what are the so we don't really know what negative effects that plays right now on, on our gut health, you know, because the, uh, glyphosate was approved based on very uh, limited number of short-term studies in test tubes, never in the entire, in, in an attacked organism. So there's still a lot of surprises, I think, that will come. I'm hoping that that's something that we can continue to evolve in the world of science is I know that in order for studies to happen, and Danielle's really the science one between the two of us, mm -hmm. but we have to look at things in isolation, but the body does not work in isolation. And, you know, we need to start looking at things as a whole and looking at how things work in systems and what the repercussions are, what happens after, and almost like take a step back instead of looking at everything through a microscope, take a step back again and look at, you know, exactly like what you're talking about. Our body reflects the health of the planet. It's all one. Our bodies are made out of the same ingredients, the same elements as the earth, and it's all related. And so, you know, I hope that's something that changes in the future the same way Danielle's talking about, that she hopes uh, <laughs> dentistry Everything will be else. different. <laughs> I'm just hoping that our science, the scientific community, finds a way to open it up a bit more and be able to do these studies in a way of looking at systems and whatnot. Yeah, and it was really well said in terms of these systems. I mean, there's one thing, I mean, I, I personally love the idea of systems biology and 
uh, you know, networks, interconnected networks. And But there's one thing that is worrisome about systems, you know, that we now is being discussed more and more with the climate science, that systems, they are adaptive to a certain point once they reach a tipping point. And then only a small thing is necessary to for the collapse of that system. And we're certainly going in that direction with, with our climate. But if we believe in this interconnected concept and the One Health concept, something similar may happen with our bodies as well. I don't think we have reached that tipping point. I mean, the tipping point could come with an a increasing number of these pandemics, which are, we don't have time to talk about the relationship of these pandemics with the gut microbiome and the immune system, but there's definitely a link between those. And it could easily be some people in this field in the microbiome science have predicted this, that we'll have this nuclear winter of um, pandemics, you know, that, that, that we're going to experience because we've the system has gone beyond its tipping point. If there's global warming on the planet, what is the global warming happening in our bodies, right? Or if our bodies reflect planet. Yeah, you would almost have to say it's it's that low-grade immune activation. That sort of, if the intensity of that uh, abnormality keeps increasing, it will have more and more damage, you know, on the organs. And so. so are you hopeful? <laughs> like, I feel like... There's a, you know, it can easily feel really overwhelming. And so in a world where we might be living with more pandemics, in a world where just existing, we're exposed to things that are out of our control and compromise our gut, what do you think are are the most important things to do? So I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic. If you want to live in this world, this is the only choice you have, you know, and pessimism will not get you anywhere. And I'm also hopeful when I talk to to people like yourself and see the success that you've had with that approach. And I, I was extremely stimulated by a long conversation I had with Yvonne Chouinard that we filmed. That kind of makes you hopeful that there are individuals that inspire younger people. I think the big hope has to be with the younger generation that looks at the world differently. I, I, I think um, my generation totally immersed and trained in the linear thinking and the individual profit and, you know, in Harvard Business School, the ultimate goal is to have your your corner office with windows, you know, in, in, in a penthouse suite. So like all these things, I think that the younger generation does not really believe in these kind of symbols that we have established. And it, it will take a revolution. I mean, really, I, I think the only, but once people realize from different angles that this is all connected and that it doesn't take rocket science to change it. You know, I mean, to change our diet does not require rocket science or even the most advanced chemistry or food chemistry. You know, it, it just requires implementation and leadership. And there are some wonderful examples, you know, and it's probably no coincidence that these examples are mainly, not exclusively, but mainly shown by, you know, by women, like the prime minister of Finland, a young woman who changed her entire cabinet into its only female cabinet members, prime minister of New Zealand. So there's, there's many examples now and they, they implement policies with like electric cars, for example. You know, they have goals to completely change, uh, get rid of all engine power cars. So I think there are these examples where that, that makes me optimistic. I mean, who would have thought that 
a young person like the Finnish prime minister would be able to to lead a European country in that direction, you know. And I think we'll see this more and more. The success of some of these examples, I think, will inspire others. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that for this younger generation, climate change is a big concern. And so hopefully we can give younger voices a platform to speak and to make change and because change needs to happen. It needs to happen for the planet, it needs to happen for our health as a species all across the world. And so hopefully what we're doing here at Sakara and what you're doing can continue to, to influence and educate so that that change happens and we can create a better world for the future. So before we end, we'd love for you to give our Sakara Light listeners some light work for them so that they can put what we talked about today into action into their own lives and shine their lights a bit brighter. I would say to raise awareness and mindfulness of this one health concept, that's where it starts. And then focusing on the diet aspect of this, because the diet aspect links all the components of the one health together. And always remembering it's not only what you eat, but also where the food comes from and what impact that food production has on the planet. You might add something that when you eat is another dimension to that. I loved that, what you told us today. And I'm personally going to, uh, you know, that's going to stick in my mind of making sure to not eat too late before I go to bed, to give my whole digestive system chance to, to cleanse itself, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it feels good just the idea that you have this built into your body and most people don't use it. You know, I, I think the that's street sweepers that idea is yeah. to get them yeah. working. Love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Meyer. We're so grateful for you and so grateful we got to have you to ourselves for an entire just hour. Take your brain on all these things. I feel like we could have gone for another hour, still have so many questions, but <laughs> appreciate the work you do. And I'm going to go back and look at your book again. There's just so many great facts and nuggets in there and help to uh, spread that information to as many people as possible. So thank you again. Thank you. And I hope we'll be able to continue our interactions in some form or another. So I, I really enjoyed this. Really nice. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That was amazing. We're going to have to definitely have a part two. Yes. I feel like we could do a whole thing about how what you eat and your lifestyle and protecting yourself against these future pandemics. Yeah, absolutely. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. <laughs> <laughs>